Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. My family and I have been attending Beacon for a few years, and we love how the pastors reason through the scriptures every Sunday. We love the fellowship, the kids' classes, the singing, and oh, the cafe is great. So if you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to meet you. For the summer, we'll only have two services, one at 9.30 and one at 11.30 a.m. We're located at 65 East Williston Avenue in East Williston, New York. For more information, visit us at visitbeacon.com. See you soon. It's the full story of life crushed into four minutes. The entirety of humanity in the palm of your hand, crushed into one sentence. Listen, it's intense, right? God, our sins, paying everyone life. The greatest story ever told that's hardly ever told, God. Yes, God, the maker and giver of life. And by life, I mean any and all manner and substance, seen and unseen, what can and can be touched, thoughts, image, emotions, love, atoms, and oceans, God. All of it is handiwork, one of which is masterpiece, made so uniquely that angels look curiously. The one thing in creation that was made with his imagery, the concept so cold, it's the reason I stay bold, how God breathed in a man and he became a living soul. Formed with the intent of being infinitely, intimately fond, creator and creation held an eternal bond. And it was placed in perfect paradise till something went wrong. A species got deceived and started lusting for his job and odd list of complaints. As if the system ain't working and used that same breath he graciously gave us to curse him. And that sin seed spread through our soul's genome. And by nature of your nature, your species, you participated in the mutiny. Our, yes. Our sins, it's nature inherited, black in the human heart, it was over before it started. Deceived from day one and led away by our own lust. There's not a religion in the world that doesn't agree that something's wrong with us. The question is, what is it and how do we fix it? Are we eternally separated from a God that may or may not have existed? But that's another subject. Let's keep grinding. Besides trying to prove God is like defending a lion, homie. It'll need your help. Just unlock the cage. Let's move on on how our debt can be paid. Short and sweet. The problem is sin. Yes, sin. It's a cancer, an asthma, choking out our life force, forcing separation from a perfect and holy God. And the only way to get back is to get back to perfection, but silly us. Trying to pass the course of life without referring to a syllabus. This is us. Keep up your good deeds. Chant, pray, meditate. But all of that, of course, is spraying cologne on a corpse. Or you could choose to ignore it as if something don't stink. It's like stepping in dog poop and refusing to wipe your shoe, but all of that ends with how good is good enough. Take your silly list of good deeds and line them up against perfection, good luck. That's life past your pay grade. The cost of your soul, you ain't got a big enough piggy bank, but you could give it a shot. But I suggest you throw away the list, because even your good acts are an extension of your selfishness. But here's where it gets interesting. I hope you're closely listening. Please don't get it twisted. It's what makes our faith unique. Here's what God says as part A of the gospel. You can't fix yourself. Quit trying. It's impossible. Sin brings death. 
Give God his breath back. You owe him. Eternally separated. And the only way to fix it is someone die in your place. And that someone got to be perfect or the payment ain't permanent. So if and when you find a perfect person, get him or her to willingly trade their perfection for your sin and death in. Clearly, since the only one that can meet God's criteria is God, God sent himself as Jesus to pay the cost for us. His righteousness, his death, functions as payment. Yes, payment. Wrote a check with his life, but at the resurrection we all cheered because that means the check cleared. Pierced feet, pierced hands, blood-stained son of man, fullness, forgiveness, free passage into the promised land. That same breath that God breathed into us, God gave up to redeem us. And anyone and everyone, and by everyone, I mean everyone, who puts their faith and trust in him, and him alone can stand in full confidence of God's forgiveness. And here's what the promise is, that you are guaranteed full access to return to perfect unity by simply believing in Christ and Christ alone. You are receiving life. Yes, life. This is the gospel. God, our sins, paying everyone life. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Robert Kelly. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. I'm so glad that you've come to join us for uh, worship here this morning. And if you're a new guest here with us, if you're, this is your first time and we haven't met, I'm really glad that uh, you've come on out to join us and I look forward to a chance to get to uh, know you better. We are, uh, we've been talking about uh, our church specifically this summer, but uh, it helps to take a step back and sort of think about the church in a more general sense before we kind of jump into some specific details for us this morning. Uh, Tom Rayner is a researcher. He speaks about these dilapidated churches. He estimates that eight to 10,000 churches a year will close. Eight to 10,000 churches not being replaced with enough new churches that are opening. In a recent two-year study, more than half of the churches in America didn't add a single new congregant. They're steady or in decline. They say that some three million more previously churched people will be leaving the church this year and entering the ranks of the religiously unaffiliated. Three million. And of course, we certainly understand why, right? We understand at least some of the reasons, sort of even intuitively. I'd heard the story. It was, um, I'm certain it didn't, didn't happen here, but after a very long, dry sermon, a pastor announced that uh, he wished to meet with the church board after the service. And uh, so uh, that was the announcement. He went downstairs to the meeting room where he expected the church board to show up. And the first guy that comes through the door is a first-time guest, brand new to the church. And the pastor's like, I'm sorry, you may not have understood, but this was a meeting for the, the board of the church. And the guy said, if there was anyone in that room more bored than me, I want to meet them. And so... I'm sure that wasn't happening here, but 
But there are all sorts of reasons why people don't attend church more regularly, why they don't come more regularly, or why they've sort of stepped back in their commitment in general. What are some of those reasons that come to kind of, what, what are some of the reasons that you think friends of yours or people you know, or you just, what do you speculate are reasons that people are sort of pulling back from church? They get bored. They're like, this doesn't make any sense to me. It has nothing to do with my life. How, how could this possibly matter? Yes, big one. They felt like I was in need and no one cared. And so I'm out because they didn't see the embodiment of the teachings. Some other reasons. Sleep. Sleep. And by that, you mean just not, not just simply what you need this particular morning, but the amount of deprivation we all have because our lives are ridiculously busy. And there's a complexity that we now have, and there's so many things competing. Sleep is important. So there have been some times where I'm up here teaching where I just want to catch a little cat nap. I'm just like, if I could just get them to think, it'll be, a, it'll be one of those pregnant pauses, but I'll just... <laughs> get sleep deprived yeah too busy yeah <laughs> that's right see there are reasons that that people have right there are things that you know that are actually a, a, they're, they're the cause that starts to pull us away rarely is it actually the beliefs isn't that interesting it's rarely the beliefs Rarely does a person say, wow, I'm not going anymore because I fundamentally disagree that God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. <laughs> Sometimes that happens. Sometimes there's some theological things like that. Others will say, you know, I don't like organized religion, which, of course, we always say, don't worry, we're disorganized religion. <laughs> so that's it's perfect. You don't have to worry. It could be schedule or it could be the irrelevance. It could be a whole host of other things. But in the end, people are saying, Either I don't need to find God or I can find God better elsewhere. And if they don't use the word God, what they're really talking about still is, the, is fulfilling the, the deepest longings of their souls. Something is better than that. Ultimately becomes a decision of priority and of impact in their lives. I think many people feel this way, and I think it makes attending church regularly, being committed to a local church, I think it makes it hard. And I think it, it, it seems to me like we might be missing out on an ancient view of why people gathered for worship. In fact, even I would say many of, of the previous generations, many of our parents and grandparents might have understood that there is something unique and irreplaceable that happens when God's people gather for worship. I think somehow we've lost some of this, and I think that's in large part why we don't prioritize being with God's people in worship. So we're going to talk a little bit about that idea here this morning, but to do that, I want to give you just a little background uh, before we get into our text about Jewish worship, because this is the basis of New Testament Worship. So uh, you, we, we talked about the temple. The temple is the main location. There was all sorts of different kinds of places that the Jews would worship at altars and things like that. But the temple was the main expression 
of the worship life of the ancient Jewish people. And so in the outer upper court, what they're calling it here, in these outer courts, there was an altar and there was this molten sea and the people would gather and when they gathered, they would be singing songs and psalms and they would be uh, listening to teaching that would go on and they would interact with the rabbis and synagogues and at the temple and they would be doing all of that normal kind of stuff that you would expect and they would also be offering sacrifices some form of grain or fruit or an animal that would have to come with them to the temple and would be sacrificed on their behalf. In fact, it would be sacrificed on the altar and sometimes part of the rituals brought it into the inside, kind of the first chamber here, the holy place where the priests would go in there and they would do some stuff there with the blood or with the offerings. And then even once a year, some of the offerings, there would be just one in particular, which would take place where the, only the high priest would take a little bit of this blood and he would take it into the most holy place, which is the one labeled one, two, and three in the back. It's where the Ark of the Covenant was and it's behind number four there, which is the veil. And so during th that one ceremony, one time a year, it was the sacrifice of an animal and that blood that was brought all the way into the back, into that sacred space and where forgiveness of sins was sought. And this was a huge part of Jewish worship. They would seek forgiveness of sin so that they could approach God without risk. Now, when you read through the Old Testament, it's really complex with the amount of, and the different types of worship and sacrifices that they explain. And so scholars have sort of summarized all of the different offerings and all of the different sacrifices, and they've really given us three big categories that represent why the Jews would come to worship. And so why they gathered for worship starts with them offering a gift for God, a gift for God. Now, this is a key thing because if you would imagine yourself in, uh, in the, you know, the ancient world and all of a sudden you had a great crop and things were going really well, or maybe, you know, you had been trying to have a child and suddenly you were given a child. You had prayed and God gave you a child. And now you're so happy. You're so thankful. You're so filled with gratitude that you would just gather up some of your belongings, some possessions, and you would make some sort of a sacrifice to God. You would bring it to the temple and you would say, God is so good. He has been so good to me. This has been such an amazing year. And you would just offer out of free will offering up to God and say, this is a gift I'm bringing in for God so that, so that he can understand physically how much joy and, and gratitude I have in my heart. That was one type of offering, one type of sacrifice. There was another type, which the scholars talk about as communion with God. This is a really cool thing. And you'll remember this if you've kind of read through the Old Testament. There were certain sacrifices where they would take the animal, they would kill it, bleed it out, and they would take some of the, the animal and give it to the priests to eat at the temple. They would take some of the meat and offer it on the altar, burning it as a sacrifice to God. And some of the meat, the family would eat there in the presence of God at the temple, which is really kind of a neat thing because you kind of catch your, capture the picture here. It's as if God was saying, we're all going to share in this meal together. And of course, God's portion goes up on the altar because he didn't like show up there and eat it like with a fork. And so like they, they set it up, but the picture, the imagery of it was supposed to be that of coming together for a meal. 
And, and how sweet a picture, because those are really some of the most precious moments of our lives, aren't they? You gather together with your friends and with your family. We just went to a wedding last night. Um, so if, by the way, it was late and we had a lot of like lobster and dancing and all that. And anyway, if I'm a little foggy today, you should blame Danielle Perillo, who's no longer a Perillo because she's a Reynolds now. And so anyway, it was a great uh, night. It was really fantastic. But, you know, we, we gather together and, you know, you, whenever you do that, you go to a wedding, go to a big party, there's food. It's a huge part of it because there's something powerful about these connections. God's saying, yeah, you're, that's what I want with you. I want that kind of a relationship. I want to commune with you. I want you to sit in my presence and I want, us, I want us to share a meal together. I want us to have a party. Communion with God. Then there's consecration to God. And the consecration to God carry, captures all of those kinds of sacrifices that you read about that were the sin offerings, the sin sacrifices. And these were different from the other two. This involved you taking a spotless animal from your flock, your herd, and bringing it to the temple and having it killed in your place. See, God said that the penalty of our sin is death. In the day you sin, you die. That's what he told Adam and Eve, and it is the same exact penalty that we hear today from the New Testament. The penalty of sin is death. So someone has to pay for your rebellion against God. Someone has to die. Now, you may not feel like that's right or fair, but that's because we downplay the importance and the magnitude, the gravity and the seriousness of sin. That's the reason for us we think, oh, that, that seems so harsh that someone has to die. This is how God set up the world because he is perfectly holy. He's righteous. The Jewish people understood this. And so you would take this innocent animal and you would be asking God to take it as a sacrifice instead of you. Now, imagine every year, over and over and over and over, how many times you would have to do this, that an innocent animal, and when you did this, part of the sacrifice, there was one in particular which was really interesting, the blood was, the, the blood was drained out, and half the blood was put on the altar, and half the blood was sprinkled on the people, as if God was saying, we're making a blood oath between us. The altar represents God, and, and of course, the people represent themselves, and God was saying, there's a blood oath between us now. The penalty for sin is death. So, in those kind of broad categories, that's the background of a very quick thumbnail of Jewish worship. That is the background for the chapter we're going to look at in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. Imagine you were a 50-year-old Jewish man. How many times you've gathered up the perfect spotless lamb from your flock and had to bring it to the temple to be sacrificed on your behalf? The priests were continually offering these sacrifices every day, day in, day out, nonstop. But we end up finding out that the sacrifices were actually insufficient to cover sin. Starting in verse 1. 
the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The writer of Hebrews is saying, look, there's a problem with the system. The system actually doesn't work because animal sacrifices don't really forgive sins. At best, they were a reminder that sin is a serious issue. And I think this is a thing for us to remember. This is, this is still an important win. It doesn't cover sin, but this is an important thing for us to remember because lots of us today need a reminder that sin is serious. We've become so accustomed to it and we love the idea that God overlooks sin that we forget that he says he is a holy God and that he cannot tolerate it. And for us, it's easy to tolerate it because we look at our own lives and we're like, but who wouldn't love me? I'm so awesome. But you see, when God looks at us, he does say that, but he also says, you know, every time you sin, you're actually hurting yourself. You're pulling yourself away from me and you're making yourself just a little less human. That's what sin does. It dehumanizes us. And every time we sin against another person, God says, you're sinning against another child that I love, another creation that was stamped in the image of God and you're hurting them. And it might be the smallest of lies or the biggest of betrayals, but you see, God says, I take them all seriously because every time one of my children is hurt, it breaks my heart. And yes, he gets angry about it because all sin is a dehumanizing of the thing that he holds most dear, us. Now, the animal sacrifices done over and over and over, they're done as placeholders until a better way would be revealed. See, we forget, we want communion with God, but when Adam and Eve sinned, they lost communion with God. They lost direct access to him. God dwelled in the garden. They were cast out of the garden. We don't just simply come and approach God anymore because of our sin. The animal sacrifices were done to hold the place until a solution, a better solution would happen. And now there is a better way. We see that in verse 10. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You see, he's saying you're actually being made holy. You're being consecrated. The blood oath is being fulfilled by someone else. Verse 11, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, he's speaking about Jesus there, when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Verse 18, and where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. See, Jesus, our high priest, 
made a way for us to be with God. He's our high priest. And he made a way so that we could, we could be with God again. This was a huge transition that took place in the overarching arc of redemptive history in the Bible. Jesus paid the price for all who would turn to him, for everyone who would trust him, and he did it for us forever. So now, worshipers are made holy. Another has paid the price. We've been consecrated. Our sins have been forgiven. And now we can dwell with God. We can commune with God. He tells us this idea in verse 19 by saying, draw near to God. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. You notice there where it says in verse 20, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body. Remember the temple and the holy place and the most holy place and between them was that curtain? That was the curtain that was ripped when Christ died. The separation between the holy place and the most holy place has been wiped out by Christ. And in this moment, the writer of Hebrews is saying, it's as if his flesh was that veil that has been torn. And now you get to have direct access to God. You no longer sit on the outer courts. You're no longer banished from Eden. Because of the work of Christ, you get to draw near to him because he's washing you and he's making you holy. In his sight, if you have taken the sacrifice of Christ as your own, then your sin has been transferred to him. His righteousness has been transformed, transferred to you. And you stand before God, a holy, spotless, beautiful creation. You know, we often call our time together on Sunday, we call it a, a worship gathering rather than kind of coming to church or anything like that. Because, you know, we, we use that language, but it's so confusing because you are the church. And when the church gathers to church, you gather at a building that we happen to call the church, which is all the confusion. But the truth of the matter is you're the church. And when the church gathers, the church gathers for worship. And why do we worship? We worship, the scriptures tell us, because we love God. And why do we love him? We love him because of what he did for us in sending Jesus. We love him because Jesus is both our high priest and he is the sacrificial replacement for us. He was the substitute. This is why we celebrate during worship, why we come to the Lord's table. It's the, it is the picture of it. He, he tells us this bread is like my body, which was given for you. This, this wine is like my blood and we consume it. We take it in and it becomes a part of us as if he's transferring to us what was only his. He's giving it to us because he loves us and it came at great cost and we're actually sharing a meal. You see, we're, we're communing with him. In that same old, he's picking up all of these themes from the ways the Jews worshiped in the temple. So our worship services 
are designed to help us to grow in our love for God. That's how we design them. That's our goal. That is our plan. That's our hope with them. We're trying to grow in our love for God. We want to create an environment where we will actually come out loving God more fully and more completely. Well, that's why we encourage you guys. We say, let's worship God. Let's do that together. That's why we come together. That's why we gather up because we, why, we, why do we talk about encouraging people to be you know, expressive emotionally in worship? Why do we, we want to hear you guys sing these songs? You know, why do we want to see the, the, the faces that are uh, awakening to this great truth and this reality? Why do, some people, why do we see people raising their hands or closing their eyes? Because they're, 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 they're working in their hearts to grow in their love for God. Is that what you're doing when you come for worship? Because that's the unique gift and the unique privilege that we have during the prayer times and the silent reflections. Are you talking to God? During the messages, are you asking God, what is it you want me to learn? How do I apply this? How can this help me to love you more fully and completely? Do you see this time as a time where you can draw near to him? Because we're here communing with a God who saved us from death and from hell. And he's saying, worship, come into my presence, sit with me, grow in love for me. I know it's so easy for us to forget that because church ends up becoming just sort of a rote thing we do. And we all have our reasons, it's our busyness, or it's the lousy churches, or it's the boring preachers, or whatever it is. You know those church signs? I love church signs, right? So if you ever find cool church signs, send them to me. Here's a couple that I really... Don't let worries kill you. Let the church help. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to go there. Uh, here's another good one. We love hurting people. <laughs> I could totally see us making that mistake. We have like very low grammar standards here. Uh, so we love hurting people. The next one, you'll, hopefully. Come hear our pastor. He's not very good, but he's quick. <laughs> That's why I don't put a church sign out front because I don't, I don't know what you would say out there. No. This is why the writer of Hebrews encourages us to continue in worship. In verse 23, he says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day approaching. You remember that big study we did? We're still mining all that big research thing we did with all of you. You took surveys for us. We're still mining it for more and more information. We found out that of those, of, of the congregation, 65% of our folks attend weekly, and 35% attend less frequently than that. Now that we had that data, we could, we could smash that up against some of the other questions and see if there are any patterns that we could sort of discern. And we found out that we had asked another question about if you're growing in faith. So are you growing in faith? And by self-reporting, those who mark that they hardly attend, 73% of those people who hardly attend are not growing according to their own admission. They're not growing in faith. If you attend less than one time a month, 67% of them are not growing. Now, if you attend weekly, 34% say that they're not growing. 
It's a huge difference. And this held up in almost every single measurement. More spiritual vitality and more spiritual growth, more victory over sin. That was another one of the questions. More victory over sin for those who attend every single week. In fact, of those who report having significant friendships, the drop-off happened after one week. As soon as you went to, you come two times a month, you immediately dropped off in how many friendships and how many connections you, you actually reported at the church. Which, as soon as you hear the, the data, you go, of course, this actually makes perfect sense. But to see it, to see the kind of the raw numbers, it just shows us how important it is. This is why the writer of Hebrews says, do not forsake gathering together. Don't stop coming to church. Don't stop being a part of a community. You need it. Now, I want to believe that people are growing into faith and they're experiencing you know, more of uh, victory over sin because of the power and the profundity of the preaching. That's what I want to believe. That's what I tell myself at night. I go to bed and I go, they're growing and it's be and the victory over sin because of the power of the preaching. Now, I think that might be true for a very small proportion of the amount of growth, like maybe for my wife only. Like that might be where, but because we know what it really is. There might be some small little part of that. But it is more so because those who attend weekly are submitting in obedience to God and they're pursuing him in love. What they're doing is they're saying, I am expecting God to meet me there. And guess what? He does. He does meet us there. He meets us in those moments and he meets us in a special and in a unique way because we've gathered for worship. And there are so many people that would tell you this. They'll tell you the stories. It's not, it's, it's a mysterious thing. It's even a mystical thing that takes place in the soul. That somehow when we've drawn near to God, when, when we love God in worship, something changes in our souls. And many of us have experienced it time and again. And this is why we and the writer of Hebrews says, don't forsake it. Let it be a central part of what you do. You've got to be encouraged to love God, to worship him, to be part of a church family. And it is so important for us because worship gives us the chance to grow in our love for God. Jesus, he made it possible for us to truly love God. And that serves as the impetus that we need to gather together every week and to worship. This shapes so much of what we do, but we're really coming to offer our sacrifices. And you remember the diagram that Chris introduced you guys to? You know, he talked about the community and who the community was. This was just last week. And, and what we're attempting to do as a congregation to kind of get people from the community to join our crowd. And what I'm talking about with you today is the movement from becoming part of the crowd to become part of the congregation. Because it's the congregation, it's the group of people who said, I am going to be committed here at this church and to these people, and I'm not going to rob them of my presence, and I'm not going to rob myself of gathering up in worship here with the people of God so that I might have my heart challenged, I might have it softened so that I might grow in my own love for God. That's who our congregation is. That's what our goal is for all the people who would call Beacon Church home. That's what we want for each and every person. Because the same things will happen that happen to the Jewish people. 
you'll come here to offer your gifts to God, to be able to say, you know, God, this has been an amazing year or this has been an incredible thing that you've poured out of me. We, you want to just bring your gift to God and you want to say, thank you, God. Thank you for answering that prayer and thank you for restoring that relationship and thank you for that job and thank you for helping me fix that problem and solving that thing and for that great conversation. And you're coming to church and you're saying, God, thank you. Here's a gift of praise and of sacrifice of my life. I'm laying out on the altar before you in worship. And you're communing with God as well. You're coming here and it's not, it's the table and it's with each other and you're drawing near to his presence and you're saying, God, I want to sit in your presence and I want to experience it. And you're being consecrated to God. See, you're experiencing it all because here you're not saying to yourself, I need someone to now to wipe away my sin. You're coming and you're saying, it's already happened. You've already done it. You've already paid the price. And because you've paid the price, I'm going to come and I'm going to worship. You've made me holy and you've given me access to you. You've torn the veil and you've let me come into the most holy place to be with you and to experience your presence. And some of you who are here this morning, you're in the crowd and you're not yet in the congregation. And I just want to encourage you. Let's remember the purpose of worship and let's gather together for these same reasons as the Jewish people did. What are you holding back on? What is it that you're doing that you're saying, I'm going to have more delight and more satisfaction than putting God at the center of my life and having my life transformed and grow in my love for God? I would say to some of you here, I know that you're even a step further back than this. There are some folks here who you're saying, listen, I, I attend, I come out, I'm, maybe I'm part of the crowd, maybe I attend all the time, but I haven't yet made a decision to follow Jesus. Maybe that's you. Maybe you find yourself in that place this morning. Maybe you're at a place where you're saying, you know what, I don't know what my next step is. I'm not even sure. I know I have not yet surrendered my life to him. I haven't made Jesus my all in all. I haven't put God at the center. I could never tell you that I love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the greatest commandment in the Bible. That's the single most important thing he tells us to do. And I know some of you here, you're not there yet, and you haven't made that decision. And I'm going to encourage you, make that decision today. What are you waiting for? What are you holding out for? If Jesus is who he said he is, and if the Bible is right, then there is someone who loves you so desperately. Someone who gave his life for you. What are you holding out on? What are you waiting for? A better offer? Someone who would love you more than that? Why let another day go by where you don't surrender your whole life to him? After the service today, I'm going to stay up here with the prayer team and I'm going to invite anybody who wants to talk about that to come on up and uh, talk to us and, and we'll pray with you and we'll give you some next steps as to what's going to happen next, kind of where you can go from here and kind of develop your own relationship with Jesus along the biblical lines. There might be some of you as well here who are saying, you know what, I want to pray for some people who are really close to me, who I really want to come to a place where they will love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. I just want to pray with them. I want to pray for them today. We're going to invite you to come up as well, and people from the prayer team will pray with you specifically. Someone after the first service did this. They had some people on their heart. They came up. They wanted us to pray about those people in particular, and we're going to invite you to come up as well after the service uh, to pray for them. As they uh, 
as we're going to transition, we're going to go to the Lord's table. We're going to sing some songs. I'm going to ask the band to come up, and uh, they're going to lead us in a uh, couple of worship songs here. I want to encourage each of you here to be thinking through where you are at and whether or not these moments that we have as we've gathered for worship are the moments that are creating in, in your heart a deeper and a more, a more profound sense of your love for God. Let me pray for you guys as uh, they get ready to lead us. Lord, we're asking that you would do exactly what you've told us. You've encouraged us to draw near to you. You've told us that you've already drawn near to us. You've even said that you stand at the door of our hearts knocking, waiting for the invitation to come in. Lord, we gather up for worship like this because we really do want our hearts to overflow with love for you. I'm praying that in only the way that you can, in the mystery of what goes on in our hearts, Lord, that you would do that, even here. For each person, no matter where they're at, no matter what hurt, no matter what pain, no matter what joy they're going through right now, Lord, that you would meet us uniquely, each person, drawing us ever more into your love. And may we, in boldness and freedom, express that to you. In Christ's name, amen.